welcome at the Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. I am your host, Maria Cernat, an academic based in Bucharest. And with me, as usual, is the co-host of our show. Welcome, Bojan Stanislavski, a Bulgarian-born Polish journalist. He's here with us. Hi, hi. Glad to be here. Thanks. We have a special guest, Philip Lott. I hope I am pronouncing it correctly, from the University of Marburg. He is there, a researcher at the Center for Conflict Studies, and he studies international politics. And what brings Philip today with us is the fact that he wrote a lengthy piece about media discourses with regards to the war in Ukraine that is currently under review, but he was happy to share basic information from that article with us and this is why we invited him to discuss more about how the media presented the war in Ukraine. So Boyan, to you, the first question for Philip and then I'll come back with my questions. Right, Philip, so welcome to the show and thanks for you know making time to be with us here today. Uh, now I want to start off with uh, what actually prompted you, the reasons uh, that you considered important enough for actually putting together this, as Maria explained, lengthy piece of analysis with regards to how the war in Ukraine is presented in uh, certain media environments. And I want to ask about the the part where you discuss Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe meaning you know Central Europe, Central Eastern Europe, <laughs> you know Southeastern Europe, and there are all those names. Uh, that have been floating around, just not to say Eastern Europe. I don't understand what the problem with that is and who is actually afraid of that term. Uh, and when I say Eastern Europe, being a proud Eastern European, okay, in this era of uh, identities, I'm a proud Eastern European. I don't have a problem with Eastern Europe. I love Eastern Europe. And I consider Eastern Europe everything east of the Elbe River, which actually goes through Germany. Uh, and uh, what what stands out? Like, uh, what, what actually made you think, like, oh, this is there is something special about this region, and we do think there is something special about this region, so all the more we, we're having you here to maybe reaffirm this. Uh, what stands out? What are the media narratives? What are the discourses? Uh, what are other elements that you thought were so important that you had to put it in one article? Very interesting article, by the way. I read it, and I will recommend uh, to everyone to read it once it's published. So, actually, thanks for sharing it with us prior to it being published. And this is uh, also the privilege of our audience. You see, you can get things which are not out yet on our program. Uh, what was it? What was it? How do we, how do we Eastern Europeans stand out? And is it positive? Is it negative? Uh, what, what is your opinion? Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be joining your show for this episode. And uh, yeah, as you already said, the article is under review. Uh, it's, it's actually titled uh, "Remaining Silent for the Sake of Dot 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 Peace?" Question mark Southeast European and Central Asian narratives and positions on the war in Ukraine, and it's uh, co-authored uh, with a colleague here at the Center for Conflict Studies, um, uh, a colleague from Kazakhstan, Philip Semyonov, and. Uh, so our motivation was, I mean, my motivation really came out of uh, yeah, witnessing and experiencing obviously the, the debates and the, the general kind of societal you know, process of positioning and grappling with the uh, war in Ukraine. And uh, I had also made earlier interventions and, and, and uh, yeah, kind of, you know, 
tried with colleagues to point out that uh, the debate had been pretty one-sided and that there had been basically, you know, as you, we've also discussed it on your podcast, there has been a kind of very narrow focusing, uh, obviously uh, mostly also from kind of liberal kind of positions, right? A very narrow focusing on uh, the moral need to help Ukraine defend itself uh, against the war of aggression and so on. And uh, I mean, that's, that's a whole separate show to dis discuss these narratives. But uh, one thing that uh, critical peace scholars, uh, as I count myself to and other colleagues were observing was that the process of the wider conflict before February 2022, uh, the escalation uh, and then towards really the, the breakout of, of this uh, aggression wasn't really you know, a part of the debate and it still isn't, right? So there isn't a, a kind of wider reckoning with the wider process. Although some liberal commentators say that that's happening all the time, but actually for me and, and many colleagues, it's, it's a very dissatisfying situation. So um, there was a call on uh, silences in the context of the war in Ukraine. And we uh, uh, submitted this abstract, got accepted. And so the motivation is really to say, well, is there more than, than in the current debate, you know, that we are witnessing in the current debate? And I mean, I mean with that, probably mostly Germany and German speaking debate, which is specific in itself, but actually it mirrors also, you know, the Anglo-American uh, kind of uh, societal and expert circles debates. And so what is specific? So uh, with, with Southeast Europe, and I mean, I actually came to only really realize that when I really wrote the article, although, you know, it's kind of, you, you knew it all along. So the argument I'm trying to make with Southeast Europe, so not just east of the Elbe, but south of the Danube, you could maybe say, or, you know... Really right, right, right. The there are two rivers, two rivers Southeast. which are important too, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, if not more. And uh, because, you know, the in, in, in the West and in liberal circles, I mean, the, the key reference point is usually, and, and you'll know better than anyone else, is uh, Poland and the Baltic states, right? And so their uh, fears uh, from Russia and, and their kind of historical experience with Russia usually uh, leads alongside Ukraine, obviously, you know, the entire imagination of relations with Russia, right? And so the argument that, that I'm trying to make is that in Southeast Europe, we really have an other Eastern Europe, a different experience, which is based basically on the experience of non-alignment of uh, Yugoslavia, of the Yugoslavian uh, Socialist Federal Republic, uh, and of kind of arm's length, more arm's length kind of positioning, uh, so Bulgaria is also an instructive case. I mean, there has, has been lots of work. Uh, uh, one very, you know, work that very clearly captures that is also Kristen Gotzi's work, right? So she has this uh, Jacobin interview on the long history of, of Bulgarian communism, right? Where she kind of iterates, but I mean, there's a lot of other works that do that, how Bulgaria had a very long-standing communist uh, social movement, communist party and partisan movement. And, and so they had a much more, you know, kind of endogenously formed uh, socialist regime. So it wasn't the experience maybe of Hungary or of Poland or of the GDR as well. I mean, uh, I'm actually uh, a former GDR, you know, coming from the uh, former East Germany. And so that experience is always like, yeah, R R Russia is the occupying force, the empire, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the kind of colonial invader. Uh, but in Southeast Europe, we don't necessarily or not at all have these experiences. I mean, there's Albania and other other cases we have to go into, but overall, it's a bit different and it's not exactly the, the same narratives that the Baltic state and, and Poland and Central Eastern Europe bring. And it's, it's pretty much all about pointing that out. 
of course, then uh, there's also pretty much a split. So we have, for example, Serbia, right? Or uh, for example, certain people within Bosnia and Herzegovina that are closely aligned with Russia. Then uh, a lot of countries uh, in Southeast Europe are more aligned with NATO and the West. But overall, I think we can still see that there is maybe more contemplation and more simply split, uh, especially when you take, for example, Croatia, where the president is also a very strong critic of the West and uh, mm -hmm. they've actually finally refused uh, training Ukrainian soldiers. So there's more contemplation, more, you know, kind of also historical that experience, obviously, of the, uh, the post-Yugoslavian wars, of transition. So people are, you know, less less kind of optimistic about this whole, yes, EU membership and, and, and Western integration will just save us all because uh, they, they have lived through 30 years of that not happening and even on, you know, on the opposite of, really uh, reforms and, and things that uh, yeah worsened their situation. And it's, it's probably a call that uh, Ukrainians and, and lots of East Europeans uh, should, should really heed and, and hear and, and think about. So that was the idea to point that out. Yeah, very interesting. So I want to move now to um, another dimension of the discussion, and that is the media landscape. I, am, I was very pleased to see that you noticed the fact that we tried to stick to the value of pluralism in the sense that we had anti-Putin Russians like Stanislav Bishok, pro-Western Ukrainians like Volodya Artyuk and Oksana Duchkak as our guests here on the barricades. But we even had, we had Americans that were, so to say not necessarily pro-Putin, but they were more pro-Russian in their assessment. We have even had Scott Ritter telling us how Russia is fighting honorably. But we try to offer for the viewers this balanced, nuanced, and pluralistic perspective. So two questions here. Did you find in the mainstream ma media this type of approach? And did you find it in other medias? And do you think this is the way to to address an audience that you consider intelligent so actually three questions so liz yeah um i mean to to really you know put forward the overall feeling i think it's it's uh, pretty unique like the the lineup that you're giving um also to be fully honest uh Maybe I'm, you know, even a bit more kind of involved into uh, Bulgarian kind of debates and, and platforms uh, because I'm, you know, married into Bulgarian society. So there's just a strong uh, affinity to that. Uh, but I mean, I'm listening uh, also to, to stuff in, in Germany, especially and for the article looked more in detail. And um, so I guess uh, some portals come close to that in terms of really bringing uh, critical perspectives. But uh, I, th I think the, the spectrum you, you name is, is pretty unique. And uh, also, yeah, I guess also to some extent irreconcilable, right? Like having certain, some of these people together in one place might be more challenging than, than having them as a lineup in different episodes. And uh, yeah, I think, I think it's really necessary and also really what's, what's been missing. And obviously there, I mean, there's lots of, you know, talk about, yeah, I mean, some call it propaganda, right? Some call it simply one-sided uh, coverage. Uh, so, so I think that is overall missing. And so a result that we have in the German discourse is really that there's still this split, you know, between uh, the, the kind of normalized understanding of the war and of, of politics in general 
that is not even that outspokenly uh, and diehard liberal, right? It's just a, a kind of normalized, uh, whitewashed uh, version. And then it's like, well, if you're critical, you must be, uh, uh, so the, they call it Putin uh, understander, like Putin versteher, like someone who understands Putin and Russians and is just blindly in, in favor of, you know, their can interests I, and so on. Can I interrupt you here? Mm. Just for a second, because I yeah. think it's a very interesting term that you just brought up, because normally we hear about Putin enablers, Putin something, you know, as if I can, for if, if I could, if I had the capacity to enable, Putin, like this is, you know, ridiculous. And I, I keep being called that name and many other names, by the way, uh, which are much more insulting. But uh, just for the just for what Maria said, I just offered some pluralism. I mean, I heard one side and the other side, and that was that was enough, right? I enabled Putin. So Putin Feshtea, which means like someone who understands Putin, this is even more insulting to the general intelligence. Because what, of course you should understand, of course you should, you know, Feshtea Putin. Like this is, this is basic ABC of intelligence, of, of, of the ability to think. You want to, you know, hear someone's arguments. And and this is if if this had become from what you're saying that is the case if they had become an insult that you can easily throw around the public debate if there still is any public debate about the war in Ukraine really uh, in in our countries but that that means you're, you the bar is very low in Germany because you can still say even in Poland you know you can say that well. You know, we should listen. We should try and figure out what the arguments are. You know, you can say that. And uh, if in Germany that's not possible, then you're even worse off probably from that point of view. Is my assessment kind of correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is, it is pretty dire, you know. Um, I mean, and obviously the implicit point then is that so these people think they understand Putin, but Putin cannot be understood because he's a psychopathic megalomaniac, completely acting irrationally. <laughs> There's no sense to be made of him. But the funny thing is then that actually uh, the, the entire liberal spectrum cannot do nothing else but analyze Putin's speeches and, and this whole Russia mail, right? So it's also this kind of contradictoriness of well, he's irrational, but we just keep analyzing him. And there seems to be this kind of attempt to just prove how it's all Russia's fault. And then actually there was nothing done wrong on, on part of the West and so on. It's, it's just not discussed. So anyways, I think this this needs to be discussed more. But the, the interesting thing is that actually now uh, in some talk shows you could watch recently that uh, uh, social Democrats, they're actually kind of taking these points of you know contemplation or not acting too rashly they're taking this for themselves uh, when it was about the whole weapon delivery thing, right? So actually there is, I would almost call it cannibalization, you know, of social Democrats on the linker, like the left parties points against weapon deliveries and for more, you know, negotiations and contemplation. So you can see these things, but of course at the end of the day, this is then just liberals and mainstreamers being, you know, more reasonable. It's not that, well, maybe the, you know, the other side that says, well, we should, push more for negotiations or, or be against weapon deliveries had a point, you know. So so that happens. So in that sense, there's still much more work to be done. And um, yeah, and and, uh, and I mean, also the, the war now, the, the way it, you know, goes, uh, it also presents certain truths that then the mainstream and, and liberal spectrums will have to grapple with, right? So the fact that uh, Ukraine will not probably be able to completely beat Russia on its own territory entirely, so we're basically looking at an uh, ever ongoing war 
versus you know a negotiated solution and then now you can see different degrees of basically mainstreamers and liberals conceding that well yes maybe that's true but we just should never nevertheless always support and never doubt you know ukraine's agenda and so on and some others might be like well in in private i might uh, admit that but i would never do it in public type of thing you know like the kind of mm -hmm. so geopolitical strategy seeps into the public debate which is also a bit problematic because then uh, yeah i don't know it's it's kind of a, a multi-level game yeah, so that's problematic yes and you know what what i think also uh, is very problematic the fact that i i think this type of behavior was actually enabled by the long cancellations that we witness in the media I mean, for a long time in Western media, because they had to preserve at least the appearance of pluralism and freedom of expression, something very interesting happened while the social media uh, was a constant presence in Ireland and they really took off. They used some sort of campaigns from below to silence people, to silence important thought leaders or intellectuals. So when it came to silencing Russia, the, the terrain, the background was already fertile for this type of behavior. And I don't know, it's not presented in your article, but I it's a speculation and a hypothesis of mine. I think the public was groomed by several cancellation campaigns from for these final cancellations that, that we see in the media with regards to Russia or anyone who expresses a point of view that is a little bit deviant from the standard orthodoxy. Yeah, they're trying to to subordinate the public opinion to the extent that you know they've never before exercised this kind of you know strict and rigid mm -hmm. subordination. Mm -hmm. I, I mean that's my thesis. I don't know, I'm not like asking a question really. Yes, but the public was groomed for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, definitely like you have these uh, these all these little uh, things, processes, steps, right? That 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 kind of build up that picture. Um, so, so I would agree with that analysis, but I also think, I mean, we see the contrast, and you discussed this with Artur on on other episodes, the contrast with the US, then, right? Where you have mm -hmm. actually, you know, on TV, like even Jeffrey Sachs, like the most unlikely. Uh, critic you know of, of u.s foreign policy and western policy in in that world area uh, and and other commentators right who by the way um, used to be the real enabler of the west he was the enabler in 1989 yeah. right and let us not forget the the effects of the policies that he implemented yeah. because he may Indeed. seem now you know like this enlightened figure but for us, Eastern Europe, the Eastern Europeans that had to deal with the effects that he, of the policies that he implemented, well, <laughs> our perspective. Yeah, we can talk about that. That's a whole nuanced. other program. That's a whole yeah. other program. Right. But so we, we also shouldn't buy it fully as, as well as Fukuyama's awakening, right? It's, uh, it's the least they can do for their own conscience. But the fact that it's happening also shows a massive contrast and this massive need basically for self-affirmation uh, in, in the West European context, right? Where it's like, we can't even have these discussions, right? Um, so, so I think that's that's still really the case. But also, I think when when we compare with maybe one year ago, people go one step further, right? And they're like, well, well we, we really need to understand. 
but for example in so in german uh, public media i mean it's, it's it's still such a long process so for example there was one documentary on understanding why east germans you know uh, are not strictly against the russian position in the war right so it's it's this it was this kind of documentary looking at east german biographies and how all east germans somehow due to their you know personal biography they just cannot mm. be against russia or so it had a bit of a pathologizing thing so genetic know? genetical somehow like you know if it's in your well, biography that you have to love putin or something and it's just because historically, you know, because GDR was a brother state with the Soviet Union, so you you cannot move out of this framework, right? And so basically, it constructed this this idea that so if you're not East German, I mean, I'm East German, so that explains why I'm critical, apparently, right? So, but basically, if you're not East German, you cannot be be critical of of the West and NATO for how they acted. It's it's just not possible. You have to be either East German or you're you're basically caught by conspiracy theories, you know. Uh, and they call it science. Like, they call it science and analysis. Like you just can't. And this is the presumption. Well, it was, that everything's taken from there. It, it was public journalism, so not not science yet. But yeah, okay. let's uh, let's hope that science doesn't pick that up. But uh, so, what I'm trying to say is that people go a step further and and say they really want to understand. But even that process is still very fraught. And uh, yeah, but let's say for example, also you know more research circles and so on. There are discussions where, you know, maybe now people have learned more to just listen to one another and also, let's say, try to understand the liberal mainstream logic and then, you know, them trying to understand the critical logic and saying, well, maybe there are some talking points, you know, like, let's say, European collective security architecture. It's it's clear that something will have to be done and it's clear that we can't wipe Russia off the earth, which apparently for some people would be the best solution, but it's not going to happen. So there will have to be a solution. And it's also clear that the solution that there was before with this, you know, increasing antagonism again between Russia and the and US and the West, that it also wasn't good. So that far you can get people. It doesn't go much beyond that, but it's it's a process that, uh, yeah, that will try to advance further. Sure. Uh, so now I want to go to, uh, let's do a bit of a kind of case study, uh, like in journalistic terms, not academic. <laughs> Uh, about uh, let's talk about the narratives that come out of Bulgaria because uh, you know this is a country that I know pretty well you know it pretty well and Maria you know it pretty well too because we've discussed it so many times in our program so uh, we have a very strange situation right which is uh, Maria likes that term non-representative democracy uh, I think it's good but it's uh, not strong enough somehow I mean you really need something punchier in order to describe the situation in Bulgaria I mean it's really a disaster an ongoing disaster it has been an ongoing disaster for many many years decades even now so but but in this particular respect the situation is such that we've got about 80 percent of society or at least 80 90 percent of the public opinion okay let's talk about this active part of the society which takes part in things referred to as public debate which is i, I think it should be called public debacle in bulgaria really <laughs> but uh but but the fact of the matter is 80 90 percent of the people not that they necessarily support the war, okay, but they keep their fingers crossed for Russia. And why is that? This is something that the West seems not able to grasp, even academics, if you like. I'm not an academic. I am really not part of this crowd. Uh, I don't even have a degree. I mean, nothing to be proud of, but I'm just sort of, you know, full disclaimer here. Mm, I, I'm, uh, I feel they can't grasp a simple thing that every Bulgarian with even uneducated Bulgarian or Eastern European, for that matter, can see. 
that there is a division in Eastern Europe. And, you know, it's sometimes difficult to draw the exact line where it goes, but you can see that there's this Visegrad countries, the Northern part of our region, like Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, not so much, by the way. I mean, theoretically it does belong there, but Slovakia is much more Balkanic, if you like, than any of those countries. Hungary belongs there, you know, that's uh, that's pretty much it. And then, then you have the kind of the mid, the middle sort of mid ground, which is Croatia, Slovenia. We're not sure about like where they sometimes belong there. They sometimes belong somewhere else. Then we have this very strange uh, thing. I, I don't call it a state. I don't refer to it as a state because uh, it's not it's called Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's just a American European protectorate, which pretends to be a state. Uh, and then we have Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, and and you know, and those are those are completely different animals, particularly Bulgaria and Serbia, I think, and Montenegro, or that part of post or ex-Yugoslavia. I think they deserve some attention. Maybe even northern Macedonia, which again, I, I mean, it's difficult for me to refer to it as a state for many reasons. But uh, you know, those those areas, they are different because they belong to different cultural, if you like, even civilizational, this became a very modern word recently, civilizational pattern. When you look at Eastern Europe, then you will see that there is this orthodox bow, like you will see Moscow uh, or, you know, Russia, Belarus, mm, Ukraine before the war, you know, before 2014, if you like, uh, then Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece even to a large extent, when you look at how the Greek public opinion behaves, okay, and how, how it reacts actually, uh, then you will see that there is, those countries are, for historical reasons, for cultural reasons, for many other reasons, which there is no point in attaching any kind of value to them. They're not good or bad. It's just an environmental fact. They belong to a kind of different cultural set of ideas of how you perceive reality, how you approach politics, and, and how you approach ideologies, by the way, as well. And, and this is, they are different. They are just different. They're not, again, they're not better or worse than Poland or Hungary or France. It's just different. And this difference is manifesting itself all the time. I mean, you can see it playing, out, playing itself out even now with this drastic conflict, you know, horrendous war and stuff like that. And why do you think is it that the West, even Germany, in Germany, you should know better because, you know, part of Germany used to be, you know, a friendly state to the Soviet Union, right? You should know better. You should be able to grasp it. You should be able to understand. You should be able to have scholars who can explain this very simple thing, which I'm saying here, I don't have a degree again, right? So why, why is it not possible to somehow do it? Like, is it because of the media narrative, which is so rigid, which is so so thick and, and so dense that, that it doesn't tolerate anything else? Or is it just the psychological state of denial? Because I, I you know, the more I observe it, the, the, the more I come to the conclusion that it's not political anymore. It's like for, for some people who have studied psychology or maybe even psychiatry, you know, to, to explain this because the Western elites, the Western leadership uh, is in a state of denial with regards to the war in Ukraine as well, by the way, like, you know, this constant talk about how Russia is losing, is about to lose Ukraine, Crimea is going to go back and stuff like that, right? And, and, and with regards to their allies, like, you know, NATO countries, Bulgaria, you know, for example, right, or North Macedonia again. So, uh, so this is, this is something which, 
I would like you to to talk about and what is your take like what is what what is it all about really go ahead yeah thanks um I mean, yeah, I appreciate how you already indicate what, what I would, uh, you know, conceive of, let's say, different layers of difference. So I definitely see that there's maybe the, the religious and cultural and really this, you know, centuries, uh, the kind of layer that has been accumulated for centuries. And uh, I, I think it's, it's a slightly more difficult, especially in a situation like now, to then disentangle that from more recent layers, right? So the, the kind of 20th century socialist period or and then especially like the you know neoliberal transition and and everything that people have lived through then uh and and i've certainly like yeah also experienced that like right? i mean the way that you know people then position themselves on demonstrations and so on and say well we're not in favor of the stuff of the us like uh, you know meddling here and so on and so forth so i i think there are these many different layers um and then why, I mean, starting with scholarship, because then the, the way that for the broader public and the political elites, it, it works is a bit different. But with scholarship, I think we have to simply also, you know, be aware that science and, and especially like area studies, it's also at the end of the day, I mean, it is kind of organically, right, networked in, in, in the wider political fabric. So area studies, uh, you know, is as much subject to, you know, the influence of uh, liberal and democratic ideas and ideals, you know, and, and then kind of, you know, simply taking this this look also on, uh, on on these societies and to the extent that it kind of challenges such a vision and says, well, they're, you know, inherently different and they have inherently different ways of perceiving politics, that kind of sci uh, scholarship might also simply not get heard and read and stuff, mm -hmm. right? Like when it doesn't doesn't fit to your worldview or, or to this, this wider political idea that you have, then then it might just not resonate. Although I, I think it's it's just very, very little scholarship that really goes into that depth. And then, I mean, for the, the wider, you know, the political apparatus, we really have to see that the liberal elites, they're just more, much louder and more visible, right? So, I mean, in analyzing, let's say also Bulgarian, you know, narratives, you look at DW, you know, the, the kind of stuff that gets written there and so on. So that's, that's even kind of more diehard than than the you know more most diehard Western liberals, right? I mean, the, 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 like was it Sholakov or, or who you know who who even like really attacked and, and denigrated you know uh, Russian culture and, and civilization and so on, right? So, so you basically have to not militant... just him, not just him, many people yeah. who just want to be you know more Western than yeah. the West is in everything that they do. So, so you have that basically militant almost and, and radical liberalism, right? That that's really aggressive and uh, and but not only that, you also have let's say you know people in universities, which which we also know is kind of you know an apparatus then where you know elites kind of elites concentrate and so on, right? So that's how basically in, in different areas of society, elites basically shape the perception of southeastern Europe, of Bulgaria, Romania, let's say, right? So that perspective that you talk about, right, that you really just get when you basically live there or you, you talk to the right people. Let's say you catch the few people in a university that are, you know, looking more at an, a, a kind of, you know, a, a critical uh, Western critical perspective or this, this deeper perspective. But then often these people simply work abroad, like Arto, for example, right, Arto Atinian, uh, uh, because also it's, frequent, it's quite frequent hard. Frequent guest on our show, by the way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so because it's also simply hard then to to 
how to say to assert yourself basically within that that apparatus of uh, journalistic and scientific production right um, you have maybe then certain platforms where certain viewpoints are welcome right and and you can kind of roll this out but within a wider debate it's it's usually always one or the other and then I think that's foregrounds basically that perspective that uh, westerners basically throw all into one bucket the entire eastern european space you know and that's uh, coming back to my paper then the idea to say well it's it's a bit different and sometimes it seeps into politics like in the case of croatia right with the croatian president who is also pretty populist as well right i mean we shouldn't deny that there are also problematic uh, you know features in in such positionings but uh, sometimes it, it really gets into politics and sometimes it, it uh, stays a kind of more popular politics or this kind of everyday politics, right? Where people just choose to reject. And also maybe a final brief point. I mean, these points of views are also not always unproblematic, right? So it can also simply be a, a quite problematic or naive endorsement of, of everything Russia does, right? So we have that too. But uh, uh, I think what's really important is for people to understand that, that it's not just, uh, you know, some kind of pathology or some kind of influence of conspiracy theory. Uh, when, when we discuss these things, we discuss, okay, so why do we actually need NATO? Why do we need, you know, kind of militarization and weapons to, to have a kind of, you know, stable peace architecture? And uh, it's, it's actually uh, many people also from a, you know, liberal and mainstream point of view would say, yeah, maybe these things shouldn't be needed. And, and you know, so there are commonalities, but... Yeah, it's, it's a long process to, to actually start discussing these things, but actually then people, as you say, in, in, in Bulgaria who are critical of things that, happening, that are happening, they actually already, you know, kind of for, for long years and for a long time also suffered the consequences of, of the way that uh, Southeast Europe has, has evolved. And, uh, and in, in that way also really harbor kind of critical perspectives that should be salvaged. Okay, thanks. Uh, Maria, maybe we've got like about one minute and a half to end the program. So if you want, go ahead with the last question or let's just uh, wrap okay. it up here. Tell me if you were the editorial director of major mainstream media, how would you make it, how would you encourage people to uphold the value of pluralism? What would you do? Like three things, because now... You in your lengthy article, you studied the official narrative, anti-colonial narratives with links, with detailed account with everything that happens in Eastern Europe and South Asia. And I think you have now a pretty broad and complex perspective on things. So what would you do if you were the editorial director of a mainstream uh, media? How would you make sure that the value of pluralism is preserved in terms of approaches to the war in Ukraine? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's, it's a good question. And we discussed this the other day in a, in a workshop with uh, critical peace scholars, like how to establish that, that critical uh, peace studies perspective in an environment where it's basically usually uh, heavily criticized or just not acknowledged. So I think one, one important way to do that is, you know, so the way that formats are organized, it's usually, at least in, in uh, German media, I don't know about uh, really that, that much in detail uh, other countries, is you have one critical person and then three, four, you know, people from the kind of, you know, more mainstream perspective, right? And then basically all of them attack that one person who is like against weapon deliveries or is, you know, wants to criticize the, the wider picture. And, and this kind of, yeah, there's also then this, you know, kind of, how to say this affect and this aggression kind of, uh, you know, entangled in that process. 
And I think that that really needs to be kind of, you know, broken up and stopped to say, let's have more equal panels, right? Where points of views have, have kind of equal representation and, and they With get equal first tiers? Are you kidding? I mean, that's an, an unacceptable. Yeah, and I mean, that's the other point, right? Of simply disentangling uh, basically the nexus, right? And, and saying, uh, so also, how do we actually set the agenda? How do we set topics, right? Could we actually have a, a discussion only about a pre-February time, right? That's that's the other thing. Like the, the way that we frame certain discussions and topics really influences then then the way that that we can have, actually have a discussion. But I think the, these uh, are, are two very important uh, topics. And maybe the the third thing is also you know this mechanism that that we already just discussed, like how how basically we come to perceive the position of a country through certain liberal, uh, sorry, certain elite and and political leaders, right? But we're actually not really aware what's happening in the wider country. Like many people aren't really aware, like what's the societal conflict actually mm -hmm. in Ukraine between different culturally and eth ethnically uh, kind of positioned people, right? So so I think that's that's also an, another kind of dimension of really bringing in, in more facts and more, you know, documentary uh, evidence fr from on the ground. So three three ideas on that. Yeah, very good. And I would just emphasize for the viewers that in the United States, before Reagan era, there was this thing called the fairness doctrine. Whenever you had to invite somebody speaking about a controversial issue, you had to invite somebody that was upholding the opposite point of view. So I think mm -hmm. that's very healthy as a principle. Unfortunately, Reagan get rid of it and then Clinton never got it back and journalists important journalists such as Green, Glenn Greenwald for instance are talking uh, time and, and now they're on YouTube or on Rumble <laughs> you know that's the yes yes of course because the fairness doctrine I think was a very important principle to uphold if you want to have pluralism so all right, let's let's just wrap it up here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Philip, uh, for participating in our program. Thank you for your insights. Thank you, Maria, for the questions, for the comments, for you know everything for making this program possible. And uh, for the end, if I may, I uh, just want to encourage those of you who think our productions make a lot of sense, then please go ahead and support us. Like, consider please first subscribing to our channel or different channels or different platforms. We're uh, present on Rumble. Also, you can see uh, our productions on Odyssey. You can listen to us audio on Spotify uh, and SoundCloud. So please go ahead and subscribe there. And also to the extent that you can afford, uh, consider either one-off donations or maybe monthly subscriptions via PayPal, via Patreon. You can find the links in the description box. And also, you know, last but not least, and please uh, take it as a serious possibility, you can uh, visit the website of our media company, nonstopmedia.eu. Uh, we're running a business here, so perhaps there are certain...